0: I've never won the Tour de France, nor am I old enough to have even been alive when some of the best music of all time was released. (laughs) I'm just a schnook. Hi everybody, welcome to Chapter 37 of Autobiography of a Schnook. I'm a schnook, I'm Sean. It is November 30th as I record this intro, and I still haven't recorded anything else for this episode, so I'm pretty sure this is not going to be out for November. I apologize, everybody, all four of you who listen. I just had a really busy month, and it was a short month, only 30 days, but yeah, it was crazy busy, uh, ending, of course, with Thanksgiving, pretty much. This was the first time, except for last year because of COVID, this is the first time in several years that I did not go to New Jersey for Thanksgiving to visit my mother-in-law with my wife, Lisa. It's the first Thanksgiving since my dad died, so Lisa suggested that I stay here and spend Thanksgiving with my mother just to make things a little bit less emotionally taxing on her. So, I was there, my brother and his wife and uh, his wife's sister were all there, so uh, we... Gave her the family support that hopefully helped her out. She seemed to be in pretty good spirits. (laughs) And I actually asked her later on and said, hey, how are you doing? And she said, actually, not bad. Not bad at all. I mean, she was a little bit melancholy about it. But she said, you know, it's not going to go away overnight. But I'm still doing pretty well, actually. So that was nice to hear. It was very unusual. If you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, then you know I make a big deal about watching Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas during the flight out to New Jersey. Because there was no flight to New Jersey this year, I still haven't watched Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. I don't know when I'm going to do that. I could have. There's nothing that stopped me from doing it. The thing is, there were two things I wanted to watch. I wanted to watch planes, trains, and automobiles, which I've only seen twice in my life before. And one of the big reasons I wanted to watch it was I distinctly remember the first time I saw it, I think it was aired on one of the network TV channels, toward the end when uh, the characters are in Chicago, I remember there was a close-up shot, or at least what looked like a close-up, of the Sears Tower caked in snow, and it was amazing. It was freaking gorgeous. It looked like it was shot from Wells Street in uh, River North. But this time and the previous time I saw the movie, I did not see that shot. I mean, yeah, there's an establishing shot of downtown Chicago that was obviously shot on or near the Dan Ryan Expressway, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. Still a nice shot, but hey. And this was the first time that I've seen the movie since I actually lived in Chicago. So, of course, I'm getting excited looking at all these things. Oh, I know that L station, etc. (laughs) The other movie that I watched was something that I'd always been curious about, and that's Alice's Restaurant. I was familiar with Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant Massacre. If you haven't heard it, you got to listen to it. It's a brilliant little... Story song. Uh, It's 18 minutes and 34 seconds, which Arlo Guthrie joked was, uh, or maybe he was serious. I don't know. But he said that happens to be the exact length of the missing gap in the Nixon Watergate tapes. But it's a fun little story to listen to. So I wanted to see the movie. The movie is basically a reenactment of the events in that story song, but with some subplots highly fictionalized. To me, it was typical of its time for counterculture movies. So if you've seen Easy Rider, Two Lane Blacktop, maybe to a lesser extent Head, it's kind of in the same vibe, although I think it's much more watchable than, say, Easy Rider. Uh, then again, this. Mud caked on the bottom of my shoe is more watchable than Easy Rider. Yeah, people told me, uh, you gotta get stoned first before you watch Easy Rider. I don't want to have to get stoned to watch a movie. I want the movie to alter my mind, not a drug. If I have to use a chemical to alter my mind to be prepared for a movie, it's not worth seeing. Killer soundtrack, though. But anyway, I digress. After watching Alice's Restaurant, it occurred to me that I should get... A copy of the Alice's Restaurant album. So I went to Rattleback Records, which is in my neighborhood. It's a record store. A lot of used stuff, a lot of new stuff. And I went through what was on my gotta get list. Got some Mobile Fidelity Inner Sleeves and a few other records and ran some other errands, went home and then realized Crap, I forgot to look for Alice's Restaurant, (laughs) but I did find it on Friday. I went back on Black Friday, partly for Record Store Day, partly because I wanted to look for a present for my wife, and partly because I wanted to see if I could uh, find a copy of Alice's Restaurant. Well, all the Record Store Day stuff that I wanted was still there. I didn't get there till the afternoon, because I had spent Thanksgiving night at my mom's house. And I realized, crap, Friday's Record Store Day. By the time I get there, everything I want is going to be gone. No, it wasn't. There was a Jimi Hendrix Experience in Paris album. There was a Big Brother in the Holding Company album for the Monterey Festival. Can't wait to hear that one. Haven't listened to all this stuff yet. I remembered a copy of Alice's Restaurant. Got one. Uh, probably a late 70s reissue, but it still sounds really good. And I totally forgot to look for the birthday slash Christmas present for my wife, but I got plenty of time, so what the hey. But I really like the album, though, Alice's Restaurant, even Side 2, which is not the Alice's Restaurant Massacre, just from start to finish, highly enjoyable. Also, I've been taking a lead guitar basics class at the Old Town School of Folk Music, so that's been taking up some of my time as well. I've am i never been a lead player. I don't know a lot of licks or anything, so I took this class basically to help me learn my way around the fretboard, and it's really amazing how just one night you realize just a pentatonic scale on a guitar... Well, first of all, you have that riff from My Girl by The Temptations, which I, and, uh, I will get to that later, by the way, and uh, the synth solo in Jive Talkin' by The Bee Gees. That's just a variation on the pentatonic scale, too. It's amazing just how much you learn from the most basic stuff. And of course, yes, the answer to the question, did you watch the Beatles Get Back documentary? Of course I did. I'm not thrilled that my wife forked over money to pay for Disney+, Plus because actually neither one of us is a Disney fan at all. We're both kind of anti-Disney, actually, but she uh, spent the money on that because of the Hamilton thing that came out some time ago, so we still have a subscription to it, so I was able to watch Get Back. As for my thoughts on it, well, I, I know that a lot of people who want to see it, haven't seen it yet for whatever reason. Either they didn't have time yet to sit down for eight hours or they don't have Disney Plus and don't plan to get it and are waiting for the almost inevitable home video release, which is rumored to be happening in early 2022 with allegedly six hours of bonus material. (laughs) Wow. So I'm not going to reveal any big spoilers. Uh, My thoughts overall are, first of all, it just drives home the importance of context. Context. I mentioned in a uh, earlier episode, possibly the appendix that I just put out not long ago, that every single second of the Beatles' rehearsals and recording sessions from January 1969 has made its way to bootlegs, quite simply because they were filmed all day, and the audio from the film reels leaked out long ago. So even if you heard every single second from January 2nd, 1969 through January 31st, 1969, in order, through those tapes, what you actually see when you have the picture in front of you is a completely different vibe. It's a lot less murky. It's much more positive. The scenes that you think are going to be kind of tense, they're not at all. They're not at all because you see facial expressions You see movement, you see how people are reacting, how they're conversing, and how much different it is to watch it from how it is to just hear it. Now, I will spoil, if you even want to call it spoiling this much, the way that Peter Jackson laid it out is simply day by day. It's chronological, unlike Michael Lindsay Hogg's version of the Let It Be movie, which is not really chronological. This one is, it starts with January 2nd, the first day. As the days change, you are told which day it is. Anytime they perform a song or just jam out on something or rehash an oldie, the name of the song appears on the screen with the songwriting credits, uh, sometimes not 100% accurate, but still. (laughs) So basically what it is, is kind of a summary of every day in order. And this isn't much of a spoiler because I think this was talked about months ago, but the entire Rooftop concert from January 30th is included. So that's uh, that's really cool. And yeah, I totally agree with people who say that uh, to those of you who don't like that the Rooftop concert wasn't included on the Let It Be box set. Uh, it's more of a video thing. It's more of a watchable thing than a listenable thing. I wholeheartedly agree. It is so much... You you have to see it. You can't just hear it. I mean, I know some people have the bootlegs and disagree with me, but yeah, you trust me. For at least the regular record-buying and movie-watching audience, the rooftop concert is much better seen than heard. And of course, the visual quality is amazing. It's pristine. It's crystal clear. You can tell what color everything is. And really, overall, and I really don't think this is editing, but I think it's just the reality that the sessions weren't as bleak as the audio tapes and the history books want you to believe. I have a feeling a lot of Beatles authors are right now updating books that they have written about those sessions, especially Doug Sulpy with his uh, uh, Get Back book from several years ago, originally called Drugs, Divorce, and a Slipping Image. And by the way, there's a scene in the documentary that actually explains the title of that, uh, Drugs, Divorce, and Slipping Image. But I loved it. Lisa and I watched it once, and we're going to rewatch it at least one more time so we can analyze it further because, yeah, we do that stuff. We do that. But, yeah, that was uh, my... Oh, no, that wasn't my November. That wasn't my November. There was something else that happened in November that I really have to talk about. I was considering not talking about it, thinking it might be a little bit gross, But the fact is, I can talk about it without it being gross, or at least minimizing the grossness. But I think it's truly important that I discuss it. Uh, That is, earlier this month, on the 10th, I think, or was it the 11th? I don't know. 10th or 11th, pick a date, that's when it happened. I had my first colonoscopy. And uh, I was very not thrilled about having to do it. I was very apprehensive. Now. Some time ago, I had asked my doctor, because I wasn't sure what the guideline was. Was it when I turned 40 that I should start getting colonoscopies? Is it 50? And my doctor said, well, given your health history, you're safe until you're 50. Well, you might have recently heard that uh, the powers that be, uh, I don't remember if it was CDC or WHO or another one of those three-letter abbreviations that said, actually, we're rethinking this. We think you should start getting colonoscopies at 45, which uh, puts me in that range. I am not 50 yet. I still have a while to go before that, but I recently had a, i saw my doctor a couple of times and uh, not terribly long ago. And the first time she said, oh, by the way, you need to get a colonoscopy. I was like, Ugh. <laughs> So I scheduled one and, um, Seriously, it was nothing but apprehension for me between the time I scheduled it and the time it actually happened. Everybody tells you about the worst part of it, so I wasn't looking forward to that worst part. Uh, To put it nicely, you'd be sitting on the toilet a lot. I was not looking forward to that. I heard people say, oh, the prep stuff you have to drink is nasty. I don't like nasty drinks, so I wasn't looking forward to that. I wasn't looking forward to medical equipment going into certain places, and I especially wasn't looking forward to potential bad news as a result. And of course, that is the dumbest thing to be afraid of, because how else are you going to know? How else are you going to know? You're just going to take a chance that you have, say, cancer growing in you, and you're just going to let it grow and kill you instead of having it treated if you know it's there. So of course, you know, I sucked it up and went through with it. They prescribed the prep pretty early, like almost immediately. So I went to Walgreens and picked it up, and it's this big plastic jug that has powder at the bottom. Basically, imagine mixing Kool-Aid. And the note from the pharmacist said, follow the directions that you get from Northwestern. Uh, That is my provider. Do not follow our directions. I said, okay. And what Northwestern told me was a week before the procedure... Don't eat anything that contains seeds or nuts. So, of course, naturally, one day in that week, I stop off at uh, the neighborhood Vienna Beef Place and I grab myself a cheeseburger and fries, forgetting that there are sesame seeds on the (laughs) bun. But what are you going to do? They tell you three days before the procedure, eliminate your fiber intake, which means don't take any fiber supplements, don't eat fruit that contains fiber. So that's not a big deal. And they tell you the day before your procedure, you are on essentially a diet of clear liquids. So water, lemon-lime soda such as Sprite or 7-Up, ginger ale, tea. Yeah, tea somehow is considered a clear liquid. I, I don't know if they mean visually clear or some other kind of clear, but the tea I drink is most definitely not clear. Um, it's translucent at best. In fact, I have some right here. Ah, yeah. Oh, I get, actually, you know, I can see through it. It's clear. Yeah. Well, kind okay. Of, oh, no, it's more translucent. Anyway, and they tell you if you have to eat something, make sure it's some kind of gelatin, like say a Jello brand gelatin. I think there are certain flavors that you can have, uh, maybe even clear. I don't even know because I know they make flavorless clear stuff. Where was I going with that? I don't know. Now, here's the thing. My wife said that when it's her time to get a colonoscopy, she's staying in a hotel room. So she has complete, unshared access to a toilet, which is a good idea. And so I decided I was going to do that same thing too. And my wife said, yeah, that's a good idea. My doctor also agreed with me that it's a good idea. There is a hotel just around the corner from Northwestern Hospital downtown, and I stayed there. And I asked my doctor, when I start taking the prep, how long until it kicks in? Do I have time to take the prep, finish my workday, and then head to my hotel room downtown? She said, do not take the prep until you are already where you have to be. Because on average, it might take about an hour for the stuff to kick in, but it's different for other people. Some people it takes longer, some people it happens immediately, and you do not want to be In a situation where it starts taking effect and you don't have direct access to a toilet. Another friend of mine told me, be on the toilet already when you take the prep. He said that to me several times. But here's the thing. My procedure was scheduled for 11 a.m. And for 11 a.m. procedures, they want you to show up at 10 a.m. So they can prepare you, uh, get you ready, get you checked in and everything. And uh, specifically because of that, because of that time, they told me start taking the prep at 4 p.m. the day before. The instructions were to fill the jug with water up to a certain line, uh, all the way at the top pretty much, and shake the hell out of it and then refrigerate it. And when you start taking it, drink 8 ounces every 10 to 15 minutes until the jug is half empty. So that's what I did. I'm in my hotel room. I poured myself some of the uh, solution. I drank it and I was waiting for, number one, a nasty flavor, and number two, a nasty effect. And the flavor really wasn't bad at all. It was basically like Sprite, really, but less sweet. It was very tolerable. That is, it was very tolerable for the first few drinks because every 15 minutes when you feed yourself this stuff. You get really, really, really tired of the flavor. So when I finished the first half of the prep a couple hours later, I immediately went to the mini fridge in the hotel room and got out uh, one of the drinks that I brought, specifically a 7-Up. So I poured the 7-Up, I drank it, and I thought, okay, this tastes like the prep, but with a little bit more sugar. <laughs> Maybe I should have had the ginger ale, but... It did take effect, I think shortly after I finished the last of that half. But I gotta tell you, it, it sounds nasty and everything. It wasn't. It was, I could deal with it pretty easily, fa- thankfully. Uh, it helps that I had a portable device with me and my Hulu account. So I was able to marathon Bob's burgers. So, so yeah, have something with you. Have a book with you. Have something that'll let you watch TV. And you'll be okay. It, re- it really isn't all that bad. There are all kinds of precautions they told you to take, like bring baby wipes to risk chafing, uh, bring a tube of, well, let's just call it soothing agent, and uh, some gloves to help you apply the soothing agent. Uh, turns out I didn't need the baby wipes or the soothing agent at all. I was fine. I was fine. It's basically so much of what you hear is worst case scenario. I was told that I would be put under a sedative, but it wouldn't really knock me out because I still need to be in communication with the doctor as the procedure is happening. However, I might not remember the procedure at all. So that kind of had me worried because I don't like having an altered state of mind. I didn't like it when I had laughing gas when I was a kid when I had a filling put in. I hated that. That one time I tried pot when I had that edible candy bar, even though my mind wasn't really altered that much. I just had a couple of dizzy spells. I didn't like that. And also, I, I'm sure I mentioned this before, but despite my Irish and Russian heritage, I've never been drunk, mainly because I'm afraid to get drunk because I don't know how I am in an altered state of mind. So yeah, I wasn't looking forward to having my mind altered in any way. But I had to do it, I guess. You are told to make sure that a responsible adult picks you up. The instructions from Northwestern said I would not be allowed to leave unescorted by a responsible adult. I have to give the name and contact information of said responsible adult. Uh, In my case, my wife. It says you're not allowed to take an Uber or Lyft without a responsible adult. And it says... Do not make any important decisions for 24 hours after your procedure, which kind of makes me wonder about when, say, presidents get their colonoscopies and they're back at work right away, (laughs) because I know Biden did the transfer of power, and that was only during the actual procedure itself, from what I understand, and I think W did the same thing. I think he transferred his power to Cheney when he did the same thing. But I don't think either one of them waited 24 hours, so I don't know. Well, I'm still here, so that's that's all I care at this point. But you would think that the leader of a major country would not uh, be allowed to make important decisions for 24 hours anyway. <laughs> but shortly after I check in, I get a call from Northwestern, but I was unable to take it, so I went to voicemail. As soon as I was able to take it again, I think I was talking to the bellhop or something. I The voicemail said... Hi, it's Northwestern. We just want to see if maybe we can get you in an hour earlier. So I called back and I told people, hey, whoever left me that message, tell them, yeah, I'll come in an hour earlier. But of course, there was a little issue with that that I wasn't looking forward to. I said that you have to take half of the prep by drinking 8 ounces every 10 to 15 minutes. The other half of the prep, you have to start taking 6 hours before the procedure. So now my procedure is, at least in my mind, scheduled at 10, which means I have to start taking the other half at 4 a.m. So yeah, I got to get up stupid early to start taking the prep again. And I must not have calculated halves correctly because it took me about three hours this time to finish the rest of the prep instead of the two hours for the first half. And of course, in between, you got to try to find time to sleep. And during that time to sleep, you're wondering, okay, am I safe to sleep? Because I don't want to have something go wrong while I'm asleep. But I figured, okay, everything's slowed down. I think I'm okay. I get to bed. I'm about to sleep. And then suddenly, nope, I had to get up, go to the bathroom. So I think I got a grand total of two hours sleep, if that. So I get up shower, get dressed in comfortable clothing. They specifically tell you wear loose-fitting, comfortable clothing. So I had a tie-dye. I always buy my tie-dyes huge because they shrink. So I had a pretty airy tie-dye on and sweatpants. So keep that in mind. I go over to Northwestern at 9 because they want me there an hour before the procedure, which they told me they were going to reschedule for 10. So I get there at 9, I check in, and they said, your procedure isn't until 11. You're here early. I said, what? <sighs> but anyway, I fill out the paperwork. I wait for my name to be called. My name's called. They take me into a prep room, and they, uh... Now, remember they told me to wear comfortable, loose-fitting clothing. Well, I had to remove all of my clothing. All of it. Underwear, socks, everything. And put on the gown. So why was I wearing loose, comfortable clothing if it's not even going to be... A- anyway. They have me lie down on the gurney, and uh, the nurse said, can I put an IV in your right arm? I said, well, you kind of have to, don't you, to get the sedative in there? She said, well, we could put it in your left arm. I said, ah, okay, yeah, go ahead and use the right arm. And she said, or if you want, you don't need the sedative at all. Uh, Yeah, no, even though I don't want an altered state of mind, I want the sedative because I just want this thing to be as easy as possible. And I voiced my concerns about the sedative because I don't like having an altered state of mind. And the nurse said, well, everybody tends to like our sedative. I think you'll be okay. Just don't worry about it. So she puts the IV in and then walks away. And I'm lying there just bored out of my mind. I have no one to talk to. That's the thing. They should designate someone to go in and just make small talk with you so you're not bored while you're waiting to be wheeled into the, uh, the room. But I'm lying there with no one to talk to, no TV or anything, just overhearing conversations from the staff, and I'm waiting for the sedative to kick in. I look at my arm, and there's no actual IV in there. It's just the port. And I'm thinking, okay, this must be why I still feel the same. But another nurse comes in, wheels me down, and I got to tell you, I loved being wheeled down to the room. That was fun. (laughs) That was fun. I I, I guess I love riding while I'm lying down. They get into the room where there are a bunch of people, including the doctor who introduced himself to me. And uh, the first thing I noticed was the music that was on. I was hearing Attica State by John Lennon from the Sometime in New York City album. So I complimented the staff on their choice of music. For all I know, it could have been the Beatles, Channel, and Sirius XM. That might have been that would explain it because nobody listens to Sometime in New York City. Uh, I'm one of the only people on the face of the earth who enjoys that album, by the way. (laughs) But anyway. I don't remember exactly what else happened. I do remember they told me to turn onto my side, which I do, and they stick the the actual IV with the sedative into the port, and right away I'm feeling lightheaded. The last thing I remember is saying, is this stuff supposed to take effect right away? And everybody said, oh yeah, that's the last thing I remember. Then the next thing I remember, I woke up in the recovery room lying on my back and thinking, oh my God, it's done. It happened. And I got some sleep, too, because I felt like I was asleep. And almost immediately after I woke up, a nurse comes in and said, okay, it's time to get up and get dressed. I said, no, 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 let me sleep a little bit longer. She said, no, 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 you got to go. You got to get up and get dressed, but take it slow. And I'm thinking, well, I'm wide awake now. I can. This is fine. So I sit up and hop off the gurney, and suddenly I almost fall down. She said, yeah, I told you to take it slow. <laughs> so I'm slowly getting dressed, and... That was it. And the nurse said to me, you and the doctor talked a lot. Do you remember any of the conversation? And I said, no. She said, that's usually how it goes. (laughs) So yeah, I guess I was awake during the procedure and I just don't remember it. But she said, you know, from what we can tell, everything looked fine. There were a couple of tiny polyps that we're going to send out, but uh, they're really, really tiny. Chances are they're nothing to be concerned about. So you're free to go and So yeah, that was it. I got dressed, Lisa and I had a wonderful lunch at Big Bowl after that, and then I went home and took a long nap, and I took the next day off to recover. But basically the reason I told this story was because if somebody had told me all of this before I went in for the procedure, I would not have been the least bit nervous at all. I'll tell you the things that I see as the bad parts of it. Everybody says the worst part of a colonoscopy is actually the sitting on the toilet part. No, that's that wasn't a problem. For me, the bad parts were, well, having that IV port put in my arm because it hurt like hell when they were putting it in, which was totally different from the COVID booster I had just gotten, which was just a tiny little pinch, and I was like, oh, that's it? But once it's actually in, you don't feel it, so that that's good. I think by far the worst part was the lack of sleep that was the worst part but once you get past that it's not bad if you have any apprehension about getting colonoscopy trust me do not it is not bad just do yourself a favor make sure that you take the next day off if your procedure is on a thursday take that friday off just because you're going to need that time to recover but get it done It's the right thing to do for your health, and uh, it's seriously, it is not bad. I've gone through much worse than that. Now, getting all that out of the way, there's a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and just recent dialogue I've seen on Twitter has kind of made me think now is the time to talk about this. So this upcoming segment, I'm going to call a schnook on two wheels. As I talk to you about being a schnook on two wheels, you might be hearing some uh, clicking around. That's my dog Lola, uh, just kind of meandering, checking things out. But in the meantime, I want to read you a status I posted on Facebook on October 30th, 2010. It reads, and I quote, I forgot. Did I mention I hate bikers? If they want to share the road, the least they can do is obey traffic laws. What was the specific offense? Honestly, I don't know. I don't remember. The first thing that came to mind was one time when I was driving down Wilson Avenue by the Old Town School of Folk Music near the intersection of Lincoln Avenue, a stretch of Lincoln Avenue that's always busy. Right in the dead center of the lane in front of me was a woman on a bike, pedaling very slowly, despite the presence of a bike lane off to the side. I know that when I ranted about that occasion on Facebook, my friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim scolded me, saying she was in the right and doing something totally legal. Sure, legal. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's, say, right or a good idea. It's legal for me to wear a t-shirt that features a close-up of my armpit hair, but I don't think it'd be the wisest thing to do. Whatever the case, man, cyclists... Driving me nuts, running through stop signs and red lights, bogarting lanes of busy roads, not letting pedestrians walk across crosswalks, cycling on sidewalks, which in Chicago and up north in Evanston is against the law, by the way, and buzzing me and giving me a friggin' heart attack. Oh, how I wished I weren't so anti-violence. Which is why people may have been surprised when in August 2014, I bought a bike. A bike. Wait, what? Yeah, I, an angry bike hater, bought a bike. And I actually planned to ride it, too. It all started when a few months earlier, a gym was about to open down the street from us. And their fees were pretty low, too, so Lisa and I both signed up when they were waiving sign-up fees. Hmm, just that they had sign-up fees should have been a red flag. Oh, well. When we went in to sign up, it was nice and bright. Shiny white walls, quite a change from the usual gray that you see in gyms. When the gym did open up, I would stop on my way home from work and do some cardio, and maybe lift some weights. But much to my dismay, upon opening, the gym's white shiny walls had been repainted. Gray. The floors were gray. The equipment, gray. The locker room? Grey lockers. Grey floor. Grey shower walls. Grey everything. Oh, how depressing. Was I in the Soviet Union? Not only was the appearance depressing, but I found that working out was depressing. Oh my god, I was so depressed. Never once did I walk out of that, or any other gym really, and think, I'm glad I did that. Even when I had a personal trainer, it was always, I could've been doing something else. Anything else. Seriously, I'd go home in a really bad mood. I'd rather just keep my obesity than go through all that. Shortly after we joined that gym, Lisa took up running. She even took a running class. Uh, Yes, there are actually classes that teach you how to run. And it's more than just putting one foot in front of the other and alternating really fast. After hearing her talk about the things she learned, I decided to try a run. I went to the gym, changed my clothes and then did a jog on the nearby Lakefront Trail. I've spoken about this trail before, but it's a bike and pedestrian trail that runs between Lakeshore Drive and Lake Michigan, starting in my neighborhood on the far north side and ending way down in the south, just a block or two south of the South Shore Cultural Center, better known to Blues Brothers fans as the Palace Hotel. I ran for a few blocks before turning around and heading back to the gym, keeping in mind a strategy Lisa learned in her running class. Run for a set time, then walk for a set time, and repeat. Because I'm so out of shape, though, it was much easier said than done. I wore out pretty quickly. But the thing is, I didn't hate the run. I actually enjoyed it. There was something about moving around while exercising. It hit me. I could exercise while in motion, but go even farther if I had help from something, like, say, a bicycle. I mean, why not a bike? I could run small errands without using gas, and at the same time, I'd be exercising. On a nice day, wouldn't a bike ride along the lake on my way to work beat taking the CTA red line? And my aforementioned friend Jim was always asking people to join him for bike rides. If I had a bike, I could join him. So, I did some basic research, and from what I gathered, a hybrid bike might be the way for me to go. Certainly a mountain bike wouldn't suit me in the city, after all. Hybrid bikes have features of both standard street bikes and mountain bikes. All the sources that I read agreed that a hybrid would be a good option for those who haven't ridden bikes in a while. In my case, it had been 25 years. Plus, if I were to join Jim on one of his bike rides, a hybrid might be perfect for the terrain where he lives. Following Jim's recommendation… One day in August 2014, I went to Village Cycle Center in Chicago's Old Town neighborhood, specifically at 1337 North Wells Street. Uh, That wasn't meant to be an ad for Village Cycle Center. I'm just showing off that I know their address right off the top of my head. But if you're going to Village Cycle Center, which, by the way, calls itself the nation's largest bike store, you're getting a Trek bike. That's all they sell. They're a huge Trek dealer. I told the salesman what I wanted, for what purposes, that it's been a quarter of a century since my last bike ride, and he agreed that a hybrid was probably the best way to go. He sized me up and recommended a Trek Shift 2. They had them in silver and maroon. Lisa suggested I go with maroon, she said it looked a little better than the silver one. The worker quoted me a price and told me to give the tech an hour to put it together for me, so Lisa and I grabbed some lunch down the street at Old Town Poorhouse. When we finished lunch and returned to Village Cycle Center, I told them I also wanted to buy a lock. I said, I plan to park my bike outside a crack house in Englewood. Give me a lock that'll best guarantee that my bike will be safe in that situation. Um, Englewood, by the way, was once one of the best neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, probably long before any of us were ever even thought of, but it's now sadly one of the most dangerous. The clerk handed me a kryptonite New York lock, one of those thick U-shaped metal things. According to the manual, it's so-called New York because it's what cyclists use in New York, where apparently bicycle thefts are very prevalent. On top of that, I was upsold a cable lock, basically just a thick cable that has a loop on either end. The idea is you lock your bike with the lock going through one of the loops, and the other loop gets wrapped around the front tire, to make it inconvenient for someone to try to steal that tire. When the salesman that I saw earlier brought out my new put-together bike, he seemingly did not want to allow me to leave the store without getting a helmet. I assured him I absolutely wished to get a helmet as well. And this is coming from a guy who once scoffed at bicycle helmets. I mean, how are those little things supposed to protect you if you fly off your bike and land head first? No matter how good that helmet is, you're still going to have a broken neck. But anyway, I checked out at the counter a 2014 Trek Shift 2, a Bontrager helmet, a Kryptonite New York U-lock, a cable lock, and uh, the bike rang up at $100 more than what they quoted me, but the cashier said, well, well we quoted you a lower price, so that's going to be the price we're selling this for you, the lower price. Nice. <laughs> now, the salesman asked me, will you be riding your bike home? Hmm, let's see, I haven't been on a bike in 25 years. The shop is on the near north side of Chicago, just five blocks away from downtown. I live in Edgewater on the far north side, just a couple of miles south of Evanston. Do you really think I'll feel safe riding a bike all the way up there at this point? Uh, no. So he helped me load the bike into the car. After we got home, Lisa said, I want to see you ride that thing, just ride it for a little distance right now. Problem is, we were in the courtyard, so there were Things that I have to dodge, not a lot of space, so I was kind of wobbly, but it also might have been that it was the first time I'd been on a bike in 25 years. But later on in the week, I took the new bike for a quick spin in the neighborhood, maybe for an hour if that. It was strange how different everything looked from a bike when you're so used to either walking or driving. But I kept in mind all the things that cyclists did that annoyed me as a pedestrian and as a motorist. I kept off the sidewalks. I stopped at stop signs. One time when a car was behind me on a tight street, I actually pulled over to the curb to let the car pass. On the way by, the woman driving rolled her window down and thanked me. I had mixed feelings. On one hand, I felt good cooperating with cars on the road to the extent that someone actually thanked me. But on the other hand, I was afraid that there was this bike mafia or something that would find out about my attempts at courtesy and have me whacked. The following Saturday, I went out again on the bike, and I tried the lakefront trail. My first time out on a real ride, and I ended up gumping myself for quite a while. I kept thinking, since I got this far, I might as well go a little farther. When I got as far as Navy Pier downtown, I decided I went far enough. I turned around, started heading back north toward home, and about two miles before I got to the end of the trail, I pulled over and texted Lisa, and I told her to find the biggest drinking vessel we had in the house, and just load it up with ice water. Yeah, I did have a bottle of cold water with me, but uh, it had turned warm, and I did not trust the water fountains in the park district. Uh, Rumor has it they still have a lot of lead in them, and it was a hot August day after all. But when I got home and put my bike away in our storage unit, um, since I have uh, realized that if we park the car a little further back, I can actually fit my bike in the garage. But I forced my way up to the third floor, drank about four pints of ice water, took a shower, and collapsed. Yeah, the ride was maybe 20 miles tops, but man, when you're in as bad a shape as I am and you haven't been on a bike in forever, wow, your body rebels. When I was on the trail that day, I encountered a plethora of annoyance. Inline skaters zigzagging across both lanes. Uh, I I don't know, I guess I just don't understand inline skating. In fact, I thought that went out of style in 1996. But from what I learned in my geometry classes, the shortest distance between two points is a straight segment, so why all the zigzagging? (laughs) I digress. Uh, I saw pedestrians suddenly decide to make 90-degree turns and walking across the lanes without any warning. General overcrowding, which I I kind of understand. I mean, it's a nice summer day on a really nice path with beautiful views of the skyline in Lake Michigan. Why would it not be jammed? And perhaps the biggest annoyance of all, what I later found out is referred to by Chicago cyclists as Lakefront Lance. The term Lakefront Lance refers specifically to those cyclists who use the lakefront trail as their own personal track. Typically, they're dressed and act as if they're currently racing in the Tour de France. The lakefront lance has zero courtesy. If there are two cyclists next to each other and there are three inches of room between the two of them, the lakefront lance will zoom right through those three inches without any warning whatsoever. When I told my friends about this ride, they were all aghast. Why did you take the Chicago Lakefront Trail? It's the worst! It's so crowded! It's amazing you survived! You should try the North Shore Trail! Try the Evanston Lakefront Trail! Well, I've since taken the Evanston Trail many times. It's really nice. Uh, Just two problems. Uh, Number one, it's only two miles long. But secondly, it's even more crowded than the Chicago Lakefront Trail, honestly. But really, if you go at the right times, Chicago's lakefront trail is very enjoyable. I mean, yeah, you're always going to encounter lakefront lances, but still, for the views and the skyline and riding by the lake, you just can't beat it. Now, for the rest of this segment of the episode, I'm basically going to talk about what I've learned in the past seven years of biking, and some advice for you, whether you're a pedestrian, a motorist, or cyclist. Warning, I'm going to go into rant mode most likely. But as for what I've learned, well, you gotta do regular maintenance on a bike. It's something you don't really think about at first. But you have to oil the chain regularly, you have to adjust the brakes from time to time, and you have to have the bike tuned up periodically. This all really caught me off guard, because hey, that stuff costs money. I didn't think of oiling the chain, and as a result, I really did a butcher job on the chain and gears. The Texit Village Cycle Center told me I need to lube the chain every two weeks, whether I use the bike over those two weeks or not. I guess I never really thought of maintenance, because other than putting air in the tires, I never did any of that when I was a little kid and had a bike. By the way, you really do need to pay attention to those brakes. If you find yourself squeezing the brakes all the way to the handlebars before the bike actually stops, then um, the brakes need some adjusting. And if the bike tech tells you to get the brakes serviced soon, don't say, okay, I'll come back later and have it taken care of. Instead, here's what you're going to say. Okay, I'll leave the bike here. When can I pick it up and how much is it going to cost? Trust me. Trust me. One time when a tech recommended a brake job, I procrastinated. And one day, I decided that I had enough brake power to make it to work. And then, on the way back home, I'd stop at Village Cycle Center, or maybe even Cozy's cycle downtown. So, I'm heading to work, riding on Clark Street on the far north side, heading to downtown. As usual, I pass Lincoln Towing and flip him the Bird. Um, I'll explain why in another episode. I reach Wilson Avenue, and I see that a car has its turn signal on to make a right turn. Cool. I'll just pull the brakes here. Wait a minute, the bike's not stopping. So I pulled harder, not even slowing down. At all. As the car was turning the corner, I could not stop, and I rear-ended the car and went flying over the handlebars, landing on my knees and chin. The guy driving the car pulled over immediately and helped me up. He said, didn't you see me turn? I said, yeah, I saw you turn, but, but look, my brakes died on me. I picked up the bike spun the tire, and pulled the brake to show him that the brakes were not working. I gotta say, though, the guy couldn't have been nicer. He was really cool about everything. But I decided it'd probably be best if I work from home. (laughs) Uh, I don't think I could make it to work on time in these circumstances, so I started the two-mile walk back home. There's a Johnny Sprockets bike shop in the neighborhood, so I'll stop there on my way home and have him work on the brake- Ah, crap, they're closed. They don't open until noon. Ugh. But anyway, one thing I have to tell people who might decide to get a bike, expect crazy stuff like this to happen. Expect to end up flying off your bike at some point. In addition to that incident, which uh, happened due to my own stupidity, of course, I slipped on some ice on the lakefront trail once, and had I slid a few more feet, I would have ended up in the lake. I was wondering why there were a bunch of cyclists ahead of me making their way specifically outside of the bike lanes. Of course, my first thought was, Oh, come on, you're being a bunch of jackasses. Just stay in the frickin' lane. (laughs) Then I found myself on the ground with the entire right side of my body in serious pain. Um, Folks, there's a reason people say the bigger they are, the harder they fall. There was a passing jogger who saw what happened and she helped me up. She said, It's a good thing you were wearing a helmet. I said, Sure, but the helmet didn't help me one bit. I landed on my side. She said, look, I'm a nurse, and I've seen plenty of traumatic brain injuries on patients who had bike accidents without a helmet. You keep wearing your helmet. But my bike was so tangled up that the wheels wouldn't even move. Turns out it was the brake cables. They were twisted up, and ergo, the brakes were pretty much permanently activated. I figured out how to untangle the cables, and I limped the remaining mile and a half to the office. But yeah, when you ride a bike, expect some kind of accident every now and then. You might do what I did and miss an ice patch. If you're riding on the street and a big metal plate is covering a piece of the road, you might slip on that if it's wet. The bike could unexpectedly malfunction. And God forbid somebody could crash into you or you could crash into somebody else. Or maybe you'll just plain fall out of your own klutziness. Thankfully, in the past seven years, I've only had three accidents. However, because I kept landing on my right knee, I have a weird, uh, kind of a second kneecap that seems to have formed down there and makes it almost impossible for me to kneel without a lot of pain down there. Uh, I went to the doctor every time I landed on my knee and every single time they say, yeah, you're fine, don't worry about anything. So, whatever. Also, I learned that spokes break. I have neither the patience nor the steady hand to replace a broken spoke, so I pay a tech at Village Cycle Center to fix them. Spokes are cheap enough, just a couple of bucks, but they have to be re-threaded, you have to deflate and remove the tire, and the thing is, every time I remove a tire from the bike, when I put it back on, there's usually something wrong. Usually it's the brake that gets misaligned or something, and no matter what kind of adjustment I make following all the YouTube instructional videos, I can't make it any better. But at one point, I was constantly braking spokes on my rear wheel, literally every day, Turns out that the wheels that the factory put on the Shift 2 were notoriously bad. They were garbage. So I asked the techs at Village Cycle Center what to do about it. They were able to get me a completely different wheel from a different manufacturer, covered under warranty. So I was happy with that. After that replacement tire, it was years. We're talking five or six years before I broke a spoke again. Usually when a spoke breaks, it's because of some kind of impact like hitting a bump in the road too hard or something. So every time I find myself going over a speed bump, I lean forward to shift my weight a little bit away from the rear in an attempt to reduce the chances of a broken spoke. One of the first things I learned actually was uh, warnings that cyclists are supposed to give to both pedestrians and other cyclists. But I really, really hated those warnings. On your left! To me, that sounded snooty. It had an implication of, make way for me, for I am superior to you. And why specifically my left? You're facing the same way I'm facing, and going in the same direction I'm going. Is my left somehow different from yours? When I give warnings, I flesh them out a bit to sound a little bit less snooty, a little bit more clear. I'll say something like, I'm passing on the left. Of course, these warnings are useless if the person you're addressing is wearing some form of earphones. Once when I was biking home from work on the lakefront trail, I extended my left hand out to indicate that I was going to move over to the left. And as soon as I did that, I heard a guy right behind me say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Turns out I came close to clotheslining him when I extended my arm. Had this lakefront lance warned me that he was approaching, that near hit would not have happened. Perhaps the hardest lesson that I had to learn when riding a bike is that uh, you're going to sweat. I learned this the hard way the first time that I rode my bike to work and didn't have a change of clothes with me and my shirt was just drenched. So my advice to people who haven't biked to work but might want to consider it, bring a change of clothes. Perhaps the most important thing I learned though was that it appears that motorists do appreciate it if you demonstrate that when you're on your bike, you are trying to share the road as much as you want motorists to do the same. If you use courtesy, follow the rules of the road—a few cyclists do, by the way—communicate with motorists around you, pull off to the side on a narrow street if you're trying to pass, you'll be treated with respect. I know, I know. At least where I live, the law specifically states that motor vehicles must maintain at least a three-foot distance from cyclists, and therefore, if the street is too narrow, they gotta stay behind you. But let's face facts. Cars weigh several tons— A bike weighs under a hundred pounds, let's just say. Actually, a street bike weighs a lot less than that. And bikes do not go as fast as cars. So rather than hold up traffic, I'm going to pull over to the side and let the car pass. And to me, when my personal safety could be an issue, the vehicle that can do more serious damage gets the right of way. Which brings me to my next points. Messages to motorists, messages to pedestrians, And messages to other cyclists. Motorists, I cannot speak for the other cyclists, but only for myself. And I am also a motorist. I have a bike, I have a car. But when I'm on my bike, I'm doing everything I can to be safe and stay out of your way. Having said that, because we cyclists are not inside a car, but pretty much exposed to all the elements, we see things on the road that you might not be able to see, including objects that if you run over with your car, it's not a big deal. But if I run over them on my bike, I could wipe out and get seriously hurt. I might see a small pothole or a bottle or something and have to dodge it at the last second. Also, dear motorists, there's a reason bike lanes are called bike lanes. You keep your car away from the bike lane Unless you absolutely need to use it to make a turn. Um, off the top of my head, I think Grand Avenue in downtown Chicago westbound where it crosses State Street is an example of where the bike lane suddenly becomes a shared lane. But it is not a parking space. If I had a dollar for every time I'd see a motorist pull over for a quick park, either to run in and out of a store real quick or drop off a passenger or something and that vehicle is blocking a bike lane when there is a legal parking spot available adjacent to the bike lane? Ah! One day when I was biking home from work and I took Clark Street instead of the lakefront trail, I was at a red light uh, right outside a shopping strip not far from Wrigley Field, and I saw a FedEx van parked in the bike lane. Immediately to the right of that van, a wide open parking space more than large enough for that van to occupy. The driver hopped out of the van I said, excuse me, sir, mind if I ask you something? He said, sure. I asked him, why are you parked in a bike lane when you have a huge parking spot wide open right there? He said, you can't ask me that. You can't ask me that. Um, first of all, I don't think axe is a transitive verb. Anyway, uh, well, grammar aside, um, I, I don't get it. He parked in the bike lane when there is a wide open parking space and made his deliveries. Um, Finally, my dear motorists, as a cyclist and a motorist, I know your frustration with cyclists totally disobeying traffic laws, pedaling the wrong way down one-way streets, running stop signs, crossing through intersections at red lights. And yes, I agree with you, it is frustrating. We all look bad when somebody does that. But don't even raise a stink unless you yourself have never, say, exceeded the speed limit performed a so-called rolling stop or Hollywood stop at a stop sign, or driven around with a burned-out headlight. You're not allowed to cast a stone unless you're sinless, my friends. Now, pedestrians, you also need to understand the definition of bike lane. All over, at least here in the United States, I've seen pedestrians stand in bike lanes and even walk in bike lanes. This was especially a problem last year with joggers deciding that the 6 feet social distancing recommendation meant that the bike lane was a perfect alternative to the sidewalk. Which, okay, I, I can kind of understand, but not when there's nobody on the frickin' sidewalk. If you're walking alongside a bike lane and decide that you need to cross the lane, look before you suddenly walk into the bike lane. Wait for clearance. Maybe even signal to somebody that you want to cross. Um, I know most cyclists are selfish and won't let you cross, but damn it, if I can stop in time, I sure will and That brings me to another point, my dear pedestrians. crosswalks use them those of you who live on Southport avenue, I'm talking to you especially. listen, chappies. Crosswalks exist to help you walk across the street. You are legally protected in a crosswalk. Vehicles of all kinds are required to stop when somebody is using a crosswalk. If you're in the middle of a crosswalk and I run you down in any kind of vehicle, I'm in deep doo-doo because you will probably rightfully sue the bejesus out of me. So for the love of God, do not decide to cross in the middle of the block, especially without looking both ways first. One of the first things my parents ever taught me, was to look both ways before you cross the street. And damn it, I always have done that. Always. Really, what is it with grown adults who decide it'll be easier just to sashay across the street halfway up the block, often at an angle? What really annoys me is when they cross without a crosswalk, but there is a crosswalk just 10 feet away. I don't want to have to suddenly swerve into oncoming traffic to avoid hitting your dumbass because you are too stupid to use the proper crossing infrastructure. If you're a pedestrian who uses trails that are made for both bikes and for pedestrians, please, if there is a designated pedestrian lane, walk in the pedestrian lane, not the bike lane. By the way, there are some cyclists who are guilty of using the wrong lane as well, but in my personal experience, I see it happen a hell of a lot more with pedestrians. Cyclists, stay in the bike lane. Pedestrians, stay in the pedestrian lane. A few years ago, portions of Chicago's lakefront trail were separated into pedestrian lanes and bike lanes. Many frequent users of the trail complained because that meant the lanes were rerouted, pedestrians were complaining about their new route, and they protested by sticking to their old routes, which put them in bike lanes. I've watched pedestrians jog right past huge signs pointing out where the pedestrian trail was and where the bike trail was and totally ignoring the signs and ending up in the bike lane. These are the same people who for years complained about having to share the trail with cyclists. Well, now they don't have to, but they still continue to do so by their own ignorance. Having said that, first of all, again, there are some cyclists who are guilty of going into the wrong lane, but again, it's much more prevalent with pedestrians. Also, there are parts of the trail that are not clearly marked as to where pedestrians are supposed to go versus where cyclists are supposed to go. So, in those parts, I can't really blame anybody for being on the wrong side. And then to add to this mess, you have people on inline skates, skateboards, and those weird BC Quest for Tires single-wheel things. Uh, Where are these people supposed to go? Actually, now that I think about it, motorized vehicles are specifically forbidden on the lakefront trail, so, uh, Those of you who are riding your little BC Quest for Tires single-wheel thingies, uh, get them off the trail. They don't belong there. It also goes for you people on those uh, public city scooters. (laughs) But anyway, on these parts of the trail that aren't clearly marked, even I sometimes get confused, despite being very experienced on that trail. Now, my message is to other cyclists. Cyclists all across the United States, and uh, undoubtedly other parts of the world constantly cry for better bike infrastructure. They rightfully want more protected bike lanes, the operative word being protected. That is, the bike lane actually has some kind of a physical barrier separating it from motor vehicle lanes. Basically, kind of like a curb in the middle of the street. Indeed, recently I saw a video that was taken, uh I don't remember where, I wanna say New York, but I might be wrong, but uh in that video, someone fell asleep at the wheel and almost plowed into several cyclists in the opposing bike lane. The bike lane was not protected. It was simply painted on the pavement. Had there been a curb or other kind of barrier there, this could have been avoided. Well, of course, if that uh, driver had uh, not fallen asleep, it definitely could have been avoided. Sometimes you see what uh, cyclists like to call vertical paint. Uh, I don't know how to describe this. Uh, You're better off seeing a picture. But vertical paint refers to those little tiny plastic signs that are placed every 12 inches or so along an intersection, and uh, they're really easy to kick over, and they're totally useless. But sometimes the city will argue, well, hey, we have these little things bordering your bike lane. Yeah, vertical paint. That's not going to protect us. Cyclists call for transportation infrastructure to be made more bike-friendly. Some cyclists go so far as to say that all cars are evil, all motorists are a**holes, and there's no reason that anybody should have a car. Uh Yeah, to those people, I say, um, get a little dose of reality here, okay? Not everybody lives where they can walk and bike everywhere. Get over it. Well, <laughs> anyway, first of all, yeah, I am all for protected bike lanes. Here in Chicago, we are sorely lacking protected bike lanes. Our neighbors to the north in Evanston have some protected bike lanes on the busier streets, including a protected bike lane that runs along Northwestern University on Sheridan all the way up into Wilmette. Chicago has a few, but they're extremely scarce. But, fellow cyclists, if you want the public on your side, you have to coexist and cooperate. Just freaking stop at stop signs. Is that so hard? It's the law, whether you like it or not. I agree that maybe they should have a Idaho stop rule for cyclists, but until that happens, if it ever happens, just stop. Okay? If you want motorists to obey the laws, then guess what? You also have to obey the laws. Oh, but I lose momentum if I stop. Oh, boo frickin who? Just start pedaling again. I'll never get to where I have to go if I have to keep stopping at stop signs. Then adjust your schedule. But cars run stop signs way more than cyclists do. (laughs) I answered that logic by attaching a video camera to my handlebars, and I record every single ride. My unscientific data from these videos keeping track of car violations versus cyclist violations? No, they absolutely do not go through stop signs more than bikes do, bub. In fact, in the videos where I did keep track, there was only one video in which bikes won out over cars in terms of obeying traffic rules. However, I did stop keeping track because, well, doing that takes up a lot of time. As for me, I stop at pretty much every single stop sign, with very few exceptions. One of the exceptions is if I'm going through a T-intersection and I'm riding along the outer edge of the crossbar of the t And there's clearly no traffic coming. There's going to be nothing coming from the right because there's no intersection there. And on the left, if I can see there's nobody coming, I'm just going right through if there's plenty of clearance. Another exception to my steadfast obedience to stop signs is if it's a billion percent clear that there's absolutely zero cross traffic for a long way and there's nobody watching. If somebody's watching, it doesn't matter that it's perfectly safe that person's going to notice that you ran through a stop sign, not that there was no traffic. And if that person sees one cyclist violating traffic laws, then all of us cyclists look bad. The thing is, given that I ride my bike in the third largest city in the country and where there are buildings on nearly every corner, I do not have a clear view of cross traffic, or at least I seldom do. So it's extremely rare that I would feel safe not stopping at a stop sign. Something else I need to say to my fellow cyclists. If I see you riding your bike and you're holding a phone in your hand and texting or trying to take a selfie or whatever else have you, please be assured that I am praying to all holy forces that you have a spectacular painful wipeout. Put the damn phone down you do not need to be texting while you are paddling. If you have to do something else, pull over and do it. I was talking to another cyclist who was telling me that uh, he saw somebody fall over on his bike. So uh, the dude got off his bike, ran over to help, and thought that he saw a cell phone in the guy's hand. He said, wait, were you texting when you fell? And uh, the guy on the ground said, yeah. The guy I was talking to said, so I walked away and left him there. And I said, good for you. For God's sakes, fellow cyclists are complaining about distracted drivers. Uh, yeah, that goes for us too. Focus on the road, the path, whatever you're on, and be safe. Recently here in Chicago, a cyclist was killed when he exited the lakefront trail onto Grand Avenue, the same way I would ride my bike to work in pre-pandemic times. I'm very familiar with that intersection. At that spot, Lakeshore Drive goes over the intersection. It goes over Grand Avenue. And under Lakeshore Drive, there's an off-ramp from Lakeshore Drive. Uh, Hard to explain, easy to understand if you were there. I guess you could look at Google Maps and uh, do a street view, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, there is a traffic light at that intersection. Several witnesses said that the cyclist ran the red light. Other cyclists, though, they jumped on those claims and said that he did check to make sure that traffic was not coming before he went through, but because drivers speed through that intersection so fast, there was no time to avoid the collision, and it's just a dangerous intersection, period. Now, at the risk of sounding like I'm blaming the victim, the fact remains the light was red. You're not supposed to go through a red light. Anybody knows that. It sucks. It sucks that somebody got killed, but that's the fact. And I honestly don't think the speed of the car had anything to do with it. There are a lot of blind spots there. That cyclist was in danger by going through that red light on a very busy intersection. Grand Avenue is quite a hub of activity downtown. Some say that it was one of those lights that's actually controlled by magnets triggered by approaching cars. Now, in the state of Illinois... The law says that cyclists can go through a red light but only after waiting at that red light for 3 minutes. That rule is in place specifically because of these situations where the traffic lights are controlled by approaching cars. Bikes don't always have enough metal to set off those magnet thingies. That that is what they're called, right? Magnet thingies. Anyway, but was the cyclist there for 3 minutes already? Um to be honest, I I really don't know. I wasn't there. But still, I know that that is not a safe intersection. It's a busy intersection. But whatever the case, one day this past summer, I was riding my bike in Evanston, and I happened upon one of those traffic lights that's triggered by oncoming traffic. My bike was not strong enough to trigger the light-changing mechanism. I know the three-minute rule, and I did have a pretty good view all around me, but I was still hesitant to go through. I waited for a car to come up behind me and trigger the green light because you just never know. I counted six minutes. I was probably there longer, but I definitely made note of it and uh, from what time I saw on my phone to the time that somebody actually came by and set off the green light, it was six minutes. I didn't care that I was sitting there looking like a boob, I just wanted to be safe. Which brings me to this point, dear cyclists. I'm saying all this not just to tell you to shut up and follow traffic laws, <laughs> yet yeah, in fact that kind of reminds me when uh, Jim and I took a break from riding on the lakefront trail. Uh, I think it was uh, this. Oh, it was May. It was May. Yeah, because uh, we saw some kids taking uh, high school graduation pictures. But uh, Jim said, "No wonder everybody hates cyclists. Ninety percent of us are assholes." But anyway, another reason I'm saying all this stuff is basically making pleas for your own safety. Remember, when you are on the road, you are sharing that road with big hunks of metal that are weighed in tons. You are on a metal frame that weighs maybe a quarter of what you weigh, and the only thing protecting you is a little plastic helmet. Also, remember that I said I keep a video camera on my handlebars, basically a bike version of a dash cam. I strongly, strongly recommend that you do the same. It doesn't have to be a GoPro or anything else that requires a salary much higher than mine to afford, and I'm a software engineer with a decent salary, go figure. The camera that I use, it's a long ago discontinued Ion Air Pro that I got off eBay for like 25 bucks or something, and it does the job fine. Keep the camera charged and use it anytime you're on your bike. You never know when you'll see something really cool or god forbid need evidence. If you can, you might also want to consider having two on your bike, one facing forward and one on the rear facing back. Also, for the sake of your own safety, when you are out on your bike, always ride your bike under the assumption that nobody can see you, and ergo they're going to behave as though they cannot see you. And do everything you can to make yourself visible. Wear clothing that contrasts with your surroundings, if you're out in the dark, wear bright, possibly even glowing colors. Have a headlight and taillight on your bike, and for God's sake, don't use that annoying flicker setting. You don't want to give people on the road seizures. Maybe even have a light or two on your body. Install some lighting in your spokes for more visibility. And I can tell you from personal experience, please, I beg you, make sure your brakes are fully functional. If you find yourself saying, I have enough brake power to get to my destination, uh, no, no you don't. As for helmets, well, I've heard some cyclists throw the term helmet Nazi around. I'm obviously referring to people who are very preachy about wearing helmets. Personally, the way I see it, I always wear a helmet. If I see someone on a bike not wearing a helmet, it doesn't bother me one bit. As long as I don't have any kind of investment with you, go ahead, knock yourself out. It's your brain that can get splattered more easily, not mine. But what does bother me is when I see people carrying around a helmet but they don't actually wear it. I mean, what's the point? One day I saw some guy riding on the trail with a helmet strapped over his shoulder, covering his back. Uh, I guess because he thinks he's going to land on his back if he has an accident? I don't know. On the way home, I saw the same guy, again, with the helmet strapped over his shoulder, covering his back. I, I don't get it. But hey, you don't want to wear a helmet? No skin off my back. But it might be skin off your own head. By the way, I have my own testimony for wearing a helmet. One day when I was working at home, I took my lunch break, and I decided to go grab some lunch over at Patio Beef, the local Vienna Beef place. And anybody listening in the Chicago suburbs, uh, this is not the same thing as the patio that people like to uh, complain about. It's a completely different thing. <laughs> but I step out of the apartment, I go downstairs, go into the garage, get my bike, and then I realized I forgot my helmet. Eh, no big deal. It's only half a mile away. I'm taking local streets that aren't very busy. I will be fine. I don't want to go back upstairs, disturb the dog. I'll be fine. So I go over to Patio Beef. I have my lunch. I leave patio beef, head home, and um about a block away from home, a bee landed on my face. And I remember what my mother always told me when I was a little kid. If a bee lands on you, leave it alone and it will not bother you. What a liar mom was. I got stung right before I reached the alley behind our apartment. And I was pissed, of course. The thing is, had I been wearing my helmet there would have been a chin strap exactly where that bee sting happened. So, if that's not testimony enough to wear a helmet, I don't know what is. (laughs) By the way, one more thing I have to say about this. I've heard on more than one occasion about a cop actually pulling a kid on a bike over and then presenting him with free tickets to Great America, the Six Flags Park here. Why? As a reward for wearing his helmet. Isn't that cool? During the pandemic, I haven't been out on my bike as much as I was before things got crazy, uh, mainly because I now work from home. When the weather is decent, I'll go for a ride on a weekend or maybe do some errands around the neighborhood on my lunch break or something. And by decent weather, uh, I mean not raining hard, uh, warm enough temperature, 20 degrees Fahrenheit is my threshold. And there's occasionally talk about extending the lakefront trail so that it will actually be possible to bike all the way to Joliet, about 35 miles south of here, entirely on trails. That would be pretty cool. And to be honest, I don't really know how much biking has done for my health. I weigh no more, no less than what I weighed before the pandemic when I was riding between 15 and 19 miles a day on weekdays, so I don't know. But it has proven to be an enjoyable way to exercise. I definitely recommend it. And despite the issues with the infrastructure here in Chicago, I actually usually do feel very safe riding on the roads here. You just got to be smart about it. Now, I mentioned near the beginning of that segment that one of the reasons I bought a hybrid bike was it would be a good option for when I join my friend Jim on his bike rides. Um, problem is it's been seven years and I still haven't really done that. Uh, mainly because he likes to do his rides on Sunday mornings and I like to stay in bed on Sunday mornings, but one of these days, one of these days, but he did come up to the city once and we took that lakefront trail ride that I mentioned later in the segment. And I got to say that was some of the most fun I had in a long time, especially because when, when you're riding with someone. You have someone there to kind of keep you grounded, if you will, because usually when I'm on the trail, I'm going as fast as I can and trying to dodge people and uh, just complaining under my breath and sometimes not so much under my breath. But if you take it leisurely and just soak in all the surroundings, it is quite an enjoyable ride. And um I strongly recommend if you have a bike, check out some trails near you if there are any. If there aren't any, go out and check out whatever you have just be very careful. Now, moving on, can't have an autobiography of a Schnook episode without music talk. So, that's what we're going to go into next. And for this month's installment, which is actually last month's installment, sorry everybody, I'm going to do something similar to what I talked about about a year ago from now, and discuss 50 years ago in popular music. Music There was a big problem in popular music in 1971 that music lovers, uh, rock fans in particular, had to face. It would be the first year since 1962 when there would not be any new music from the Beatles. Sure, the individual members carried on in their own directions, but (sighs) it just wasn't the same. Jimi Hendrix had recently died, so now all we could get from him was what was in his archives. Janis Joplin died shortly after that, too. Simon and Garfunkel broke up. There are just so many things in the pop music world that were changing, and not necessarily for the better. That meant that those who were releasing music in 1971 had some pretty big shoes to fill. They knew they'd better put out something memorable, or else. At least, that's how I personally see it. Whether or not I'm particularly correct, that's another question. Regardless of whether my observation is on the money, there's one thing you gotta agree with. There were some dang good albums released in 1971. If you think about the long players that came out that year, it's really something. Gene Simmons claimed that Kiss was the first band to have a hit double record concert album with Alive. Well, the thing is, Alive came out in 1975, but let me tell you, 1971 was a great year for multi-disc live recordings. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young had Four Way Street. It's definitely some good listening, but I have a couple of complaints about it. For one, They included only the very end of sweet Judy Blue Eyes, and even the CD reissue didn't include a full performance of it. Also, you can barely hear the between-song banter. Nonetheless, that otherwise great double album, double live album again, went to the top of the Billboard albums chart. For the second year in a row... George Harrison released a three-record set, this time the Concert for Bangladesh. Eh, Okay, it's George Harrison and Friends, but still. Uh, Anyway, that's probably the first ever All-Star Charity Arena concert. It only went to number 16 on Billboard. Only. (laughs) But for a three-record set, that's pretty impressive. Personally, I think it's better seen than heard, particularly Billy Preston's performance of That's the Way God Planned It. Now, another album from 1971 that I'd like Gene Simmons to consider, Chicago at Carnegie Hall, which peaked at number three on Billboard. So, definitely a hit album. Oh, by the way, that was a four-record set. Of course, now you can get the complete concerts from which that album was put together. It's a huge 16-CD set. Personally, I'm not looking to get it. Uh, For one reason, I'm not that big a Chicago fan. And another reason, uh, given that those people who did the atrocious Chicago Transit Authority 50th Anniversary remix also did this release, uh, including literally altering a bad performance of the song Someday to fix the flaws in the performance, no thank you. Regardless, that right there, nine discs, nine vinyl discs worth of concert material that performed well on the charts in 1971 – not bad. Then you got your singer-songwriters. Joni Mitchell had her mega-popular album, Blue, in 1971, although, to be honest, it doesn't really do much for me personally. I actually prefer her 1970 offering, Ladies of the Canyon. James Taylor's Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon gave us his cover of Carol King's You've Got a Friend. Laura Nero released a great album of Motown and related covers Gonna Take a Miracle. I know that I'm supposed to say that her best album is Eli and the Thirteenth Confession, and it very well might be, but I really do love Gonna Take a Miracle. I only recently started listening to the late Laura Nero and, man, her voice. I've told people this before, she could sing my death certificate and I would love it. But Gonna Take a Miracle gets especially poignant with the song Desiree, which when taken at face value, would have homosexual implications. Nero, indeed, was a closeted bisexual. I still need to give more attention to Eli and the 13th Confession, but I do love Gonna Take a Miracle. Stevie Wonder released his last album before his so-called Classic Five, uh, that album being Where I'm Coming From. While it didn't have the amazing sound of his next five albums, there were definitely some signposts of what was yet to come, production-wise and performance-wise. Where I'm Coming From gave us the hit If You Really Love Me, and Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer, the latter of which Stevie performed at Michael Jackson's memorial service at the Staples Center. Billy Preston's A&M Records debut, I Wrote a Simple Song, is worth the price of admission, just for out of space and without a song. Paul McCartney released his second post-Beatles project, Ram, credited to him and his wife Linda. Personally, I think this is easily his best post-Beatles album. Such a great collection from start to finish that could easily have been ruined had he included the much-too-long Another Day, but thankfully Maka did the right thing, kept it off the album, just relegated it to a single. And personally, I think it's sad that that was his debut single, but anyway, regardless, get yourself a copy of Ram, crank up the volume, especially on the opening and closing tracks on Side 1. Too Many People, reportedly a dig at John Lennon, and Smile Away. Oh, great rockers. I almost said Sinatra. This is definitely not Sinatra, but Santana's third album, titled, appropriately enough, Santana 3, was released in September of 1971 and topped the Billboard 200. I still prefer Abraxas, but I have to acknowledge the success of its follow-up. Then you have The Doors. Of course, everybody knows about the death of Jim Morrison, and shut up, yes, he did die in 1971. He did not fake his death. He was such an attention slut that he never would have lasted long in hiding. And on top of that, he was in such terrible shape that, even if he did fake his death and went into hiding, he likely wouldn't have survived. Regardless, The Doors released their last album with Jim Morrison in 1971, L.A. Woman, and what a great album it was. Heavily blues-influenced and loaded with fantastic tracks that's only ruined by Love Her Madly. Yep, I said it. Ruined. Love Her Madly is a boring, terrible song. Ugh. You want a good song from the LA Woman album, there are plenty to pick from. The title track, Been Down So Long, Riders on the Storm, Cars hiss by My Window. And much to my delight, a 50th anniversary 3 CD plus remastered vinyl LA Woman set is now available and (laughs) in my collection. I know I'm leaving out a lot, for example Straight Up by Badfinger, but I don't want a podcast episode to be too freaking long. But there were so many landmark albums released in 1971, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're all good or even well known. So I came up with a trio of top three lists. The Top 3 Most Overrated Albums of 1971 The Top 3 Most Underrated Albums of 1971 And the Top 3 Best Albums of 1971 And that's according to the only authority I trust in this regard, me. First, let's start with what I think are the most overrated albums of 1971. Those who either know me personally or have listened to this podcast regularly would probably be shocked with the number 3 entry on my list but I have to say, Surf's Up by the Beach Boys. Yes, the album does fall within my favorite time period of Beach Boys releases, that being 1965 through 1973, but I really think Surf's Up gets more praise than it deserves. It does have two of Brian Wilson's greatest songs ever, the beautiful and tragically emotional Till I Die and the ever-brilliant Surf's Up, resurrected from the Aborted Smile album of 1967. In fact, if I had to choose one and only one song that is my very favorite Beach Boys song, it would likely be Surf's Up. But one favorite song does not a great album make. For one thing, the Surf's Up album is very dated. Despite its important message, the song Don't Go Near the Water sounds like a song by Bread. The electric piano in Carl Wilson's Long Promised Road instantly transports you back to the early 70s, and I don't mean that in a good way. In fact, I really don't like Long Promised Road at all, at least as it appears on the album. I know, I know, that's sacrilege, but honestly, I just find the production boring. And I hate that horn sound during the instrumental break. It sounds like an elephant hyperventilating or something. And I especially hate how fans essentially turned this song into Carl Wilson's equivalent to Imagine, or perhaps the Carl Wilson Cancer Anthem. Bruce Johnston's Disney Girls 1957, while very charming, is extremely dated, although I would not be surprised if it were the inspiration for Paul Simon to record Still Crazy after all these years. And don't even get me started on A Day in the Life of a Tree, the only song Brian Wilson wrote specifically for this album. I have no problem with manager Jack Riley's lead vocal, it's fine as far as I'm concerned, I just I don't don't like the sappy lyrics, Uh, pun may or may not have been intended by the way, and I don't like the backing track. There was never once in the past 30 years that I've been intimately familiar with the Surf's Up album that I was able to sit through the song in its entirety without wincing in pain. I have a love-hate relationship with Student Demonstration Time, Mike Love's reworking of Lieber and Stoller's Riot and Cell Block Number 9. It's a good rocking track for sure, and the live version on the recently released Feel Flows archival set is definitely a killer performance, but sometimes the lyrics just make me roll my eyes. America on May 4th, 1970. When Riley turned a ride up at Kent State University, they said the students scared the guard, though the troops were battle dressed. For earn the new degree, the of bullets. I used to like Al Jardine's Looking at Tomorrow, a welfare song, quite a lot, in fact. But when I sadly recently found out that it's just the Kingston Trio's The Wanderer with new lyrics, with no credit given whatsoever to the original composers, I lost a lot of respect for the song. And one major, huge problem with the album, it does not have a single Dennis Wilson song on it. Dennis had been writing and recording like a madman for a couple of years at the time, and as anybody who's heard the aforementioned Feel Flows set can tell you, most, if not all, of it was nothing short of stunningly brilliant. Two of his songs, Wouldn't It Be Nice to Live Again and I Think Fourth of July, were supposed to be on the album, but after some internal squabbling, Dennis pulled the tracks from the release. The Surf's Up album does have its moments, though. Besides the two great Brian Wilson tracks I mentioned, there's Take a Load Off Your Feet, a collaboration between Wilson and Al Jardine. Many fans actually hate that song, but personally, I love it, simply because it's such a goofy recording. It's a fun listen. If you don't take it seriously, it's really enjoyable. And the side two opener, Carl Wilson's Feel Flows, is nothing short of brilliant, although it does have a very dated flute solo in it. The thing about Surf's Up is that it came out when the Beach Boys were starting to regain some credibility on the music scene. After releasing about three years' worth of albums that their American fans didn't care much for, the Grateful Dead invited the guys to join them on stage at the Fillmore East. When word got out that the Beach Boys were jamming with the Dead, suddenly they were cool again. That may or may not have led to Surf's Up getting some pretty serious recognition, especially among the FM radio album-oriented rock crowd. And with some songs addressing current problems the world was facing, the types of songs that fans have been yearning for for years, by the way, to this day there are music fans who aren't necessarily Beach Boys fans who really dig surfs up. Personally, I think their previous album, 1970's Sunflower, is a much better offering and definitely more of a group effort. Now, if there's one thing you learned about me from this podcast, it's that I love the Beatles. To me, they're the end-all, be-all, which is why you'd probably be surprised to learn that in my ranking of the top three most overrated albums of 1971, number two is John Lennon's Imagine. Released just a week after Surf's Up and reaching number one on the Billboard chart, Imagine, according to Lennon himself, was basically a commercial reworking of his previous album, Plastic Ono Band, an album that I love dearly. For example, Imagine's obscenely overplayed title track is a more accessible version of Plastic Ono Band's God. And man, I am so sick of that song. Crippled Inside and Oh Yoko sound too much like Aliota Haynes and Jeremiah. And once again, I don't mean that in a good way. Much too country. Jealous Guy, which as a Beatles nerd I have to throw in this bit of trivia. The song started life as Child of Nature, a song John Lennon wrote in India in 1968. Beautiful song, but honestly it needs to be a little bit shorter. I Don't Wanna Be a Soldier Mama is much too long. Not just in its six minute running time, but also the title itself. How Do You Sleep, which you can practically hear Lennon sing with an evil grin with this stinging attack on his former musical brother Paul McCartney, also is too long. Gimme Some Truth is annoyingly repetitive. Oh My Love is boring and reminds me too much of love from the Plastic Ono Band album. That leaves How, which sounds like a Plastic Ono Band leftover with a string section, but I mean that in a good way. And the song, It's So Hard, a cool bluesy tune that I feel is the Imagine equivalent to Well, 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 one of my favorite tracks from Plastic Ono Band. So that's two songs I like. Two songs, meaning that the Imagine album scores a 40% with me. Now, I've never known a teacher on whose grading scale a 40% is ever higher than an F. So if it's so rated, why was Imagine such a huge hit? I have two answers for that. First, it was supported by a strong single. The song Imagine peaked at number three on Billboard, number two on Cashbox, and number one on Record World. Second, and probably even more so, are reasons for the album's success. The Beatles' breakup was announced not even a year and a half earlier. Fans clamoring for new Beatles product would buy anything involving the Beatles which could also explain the successes of McCartney's albums McCartney, which hit number one, and Ram, which went to number two, Plastic Ono Band peaking it at impressive number six, and of course both of George Harrison's triple albums, with All Things Must Passed going to number one. Ringo Starr, by the way, did not have any musical output in 1971, although he did play on both the Imagine album and the Concert for Bangladesh. And, well, I do have to admit his first two albums weren't as successful as the albums from his ex-bandmates, with Sentimental Journey peaking at number 22 on Billboard and Bokuza Blues only reaching number 65. But still, if Lennon's history did not involve the Beatles... It's doubtful Imagine would have been the success that it was. As for the number one most overrated album of 1971, I also feel it's the most overrated album ever. You, dear listener, are about to hear me make a lot of enemies, you possibly being one of them. The most overrated album ever, and this is non-negotiable, is the fourth album released by the band Led Zeppelin. Notice I didn't say Led Zeppelin 4 because, well, there's no such album. Folks, it is not titled Led Zeppelin 4. It has no title, which is a problem right there, because Led Zeppelin's first album was also untitled. I've seen other titles attached to the fourth album. I've seen some people call it Stairway to Heaven, I've seen Zoso, I've seen Zofo, Uh, the latter two being interpretations of what the symbol representing Jimmy Page appears to spell out. Speaking of which, even the label on the record does not give the album a title. It just shows those four symbols that each member of Led Zeppelin designed. But the thing is, Led Zeppelin started out great. Their first two albums were jam-packed with some hard-rockin' adaptations and admittedly plagiarisms of blues. Then with Led Zeppelin three. The band ruined its sound by trying to creep into heavy metal, although Bronny or Stomp is quite a fun track. By the time the fourth album happened, they scaled back a bit on the metal, still a little bit of hard rock, but they scaled it back a little, but really, it's such a boring listen. Black Dog sounds like a desperate retread of good times, bad times, and whole lot of love. And Rock and Roll sounds like an even desperater... Damn it, there's that red underscore in the script. If I say Desperater is a word, then Desperater is a word. (laughs) Anyway, where was I? Ah, yes, uh, Rock and Roll was an even Desperater retread of Black Dog. Going to California sounds like something someone wrote because the album came in three minutes short, yet somehow sounds like it goes on for nine minutes. Now, Led Zeppelin emits some kind of vibe that makes classic rock radio hosts not want to ever announce the titles of some of their songs, and two of those songs appear on this album, When the Levee Breaks and Misty Mountain Hop. I was very familiar with both of these songs, and both of the titles, long before I ever connected the songs to their titles. That is, I long knew Misty Mountain Hop before I knew that the name of the song was Misty Mountain Hop, and I knew that title long before I ever knew that the song I was listening to was Misty Mountain Hop. Because radio DJs never identified them for some reason, so these songs leave a bad taste in my mouth simply for that strange tendency of jocks to not announce the songs. Unfair? Maybe, but I'm the authority on overrated 1971 albums, so my rules. K? K. And Stairway to Heaven. Ah, yes, the ubiquitous rock anthem that every teenage boy tries to learn to play on guitar in high school. Admittedly, I was one of them. I learned everything but the guitar solo. Still don't know how to play it. Walk into a busy musical instrument store, and I can almost promise you that you will hear someone testing a guitar by playing, at the very least, the intro of Stairway. If not Stairway, then Day Tripper by The Beatles or One by Metallica. Now, <laughs> I apologize, but I have to go off on a bit of a Wayne's World tangent. There's a famous scene in that movie when Wayne is trying out a Stratocaster-looking guitar in a music store. Might be an actual Stratocaster, actually, and I don't 100% remember. But he starts playing what's obviously the beginning of Stairway to Heaven, and a store worker immediately stops Wayne and points to a sign saying, No Stairway to Heaven. Now... The common explanation for that is that Led Zeppelin is supposedly very lawsuit happy and the store doesn't want to be sued. But I more firmly believe, as I believed when I saw the movie for the first time on Valentine's Day 1992, that it's a joke based on how you will hear someone play that at every music store on the face of the earth and people who work at those stores are so sick of hearing it. What really makes me shake my head is that in most home video releases and television airings of the movie, the four notes that Wayne played were replaced by totally different notes. Uh, wait a minute. The first four notes of the Stairway to Heaven intro, an intro that was likely plagiarized from Taurus by the group's former opening act spirit, are A, C, E, and the next higher A. In other words a broken A minor chord. Last I checked, neither Led Zeppelin nor anybody else in the universe owns the rights to playing those four notes in succession. If they did, then anybody who has ever played a barred A minor chord on a guitar one note at a time would be in legal jeopardy. But this just makes me think. There's gotta be a reason that that one broken chord in the movie Wayne's World had to be replaced. Because someone was afraid that Led Zeppelin's legal team would sue. I have a word for people who are that petty that they would sue over that, but I don't use that kind of language in my podcast. And if I do, I'd bleep it, but man, I have too much editing to do as it is. You know what, while we're at it, let me play a broken A minor chord for you. Oh, while we're at it, let's see if Ray Charles's estate sues me over playing these three commonly placed notes in an E7 chord in succession. Oh, and Joe Beat Music, are you listening? Here, do you have a problem with me playing a pentatonic scale in C? <laughs> anyway, um, sorry about that, friends. Uh, getting back to Stairway, also that it's an A minor... That alone is a turnoff for me. That's just the way my ears function. They get very bored with songs that are in A minor. That's why I also hate Things We Said Today by The Beatles and Love Her Madly by The Doors. Having said that, though, I did hear a live version of Stairway to Heaven on Sirius XM, I think it was the classic vinyl channel, very recently. I listened to the whole thing, and for the first time in over 20 years, I listened to Stairway, and I didn't hate it. So... I don't know, maybe there's hope. But still, Led Zeppelin's fourth album, most overrated album ever. I will say this though, for what it's worth, it does sound good on vinyl. So to sum it all up, the top three most overrated albums of 1971, starting with the third most overrated album, Surf's Up by the Beach Boys, Imagine by John Lennon, and Led Zeppelin's fourth album. And if I'm going to talk about the most overrated albums... I should also rank the most underrated albums, right? Of course I should. Sadly, few people know that The Doors did release another album in 1971, Other Voices. I discussed this and the second post-Morrison Doors album, Full Circle, in Chapter 10 of this podcast. But seriously... Other Voices is a strong album, Ships With Sails, uh, with by the way is spelled W slash. <laughs> the third track on Side One, I love that song. Ships With Sails clocks in it over seven and a half minutes, and it's actually one of my all-time favorite songs by The Doors. And because I don't want to spend too much time on an album I already talked about at length in a previous episode, I want to move on to what I feel is the second most underrated album of 1971. Now, some might question whether the album is truly underrated. The more I keep my ears open, the more I hear people talk about it. And this long player reached a respectable number 13 on Billboard's top LPs chart and number 9 on Cashbox and Record World. But the thing is, I never heard of it until the last couple of years. The album? If I Could Only Remember My Name by David Crosby. That's right, among the albums I love are Crosby, Stills, and Nash's debut, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young's Déjà Vu, plus the Four Way Street concert album. I mentioned in an earlier episode my love for Stephen Stills' first Manassas album, but I never heard of this David Crosby album, until I watched Cameron Crowe's Crosby documentary Remember My Name. Out of curiosity, I checked out a copy from the public library and I listened to it. What I heard blew my mind. The opening track, Music Is Love, serves as a fantastic album intro that's nothing but hook. Now, you know how sometimes there's a single song that justifies the purchase of an entire album? For me, Cowboy Movie justifies the purchase of If I Could Only Remember My Name. At eight minutes, that song is just too short for its own groove. Truth is though, there isn't a single dud on the whole album. It's just really good stuff from start to finish. When Crosby recorded the album in 1970, he was in some pretty serious mourning over the sudden loss of his girlfriend Christine Hinton the year before, and a lot of the music shows. Particularly with the album's closer, the haunting, wordless acapella track I'd Swear There Was Somebody Here, which he wrote with Christine Hinton as the inspiration. I was listening to my vinyl copy recently when Lisa was out. She came back home when this track was playing. She asked what album I was listening to, and I told her it was Crosby's. She listened to this track for a few seconds and, stunned, simply said, Whoa. For me, though, the whoa moment on the album is, What Are Their Names?, which opens side two. Only 40 seconds of the four and a quarter minute song have vocals, singing very harshly with punch about how we can't trust those who run the world. Speaking of my vinyl copy, I need to talk about that for just a bit. After I heard the CD that I borrowed from the library, I decided to seek out the album. Lori's Planet of Sound, one of my favorite record stores here on the north side of Chicago, actually had two copies in the recent arrivals section. One that was in really good shape, and another that obviously once belonged to a radio station in Mississippi that had the call sign of WMPK, judging from the stamp on the label and the masking tape that had some identifying marks from the station. I actually opted for the copy previously owned by WMPK, admittedly partly because it was much cheaper than the other copy, and also because I wanted to honor my brief radio career. And I decided not to remove the masking tape and stickers from the radio station. I find the radio station's marks very charming. Best of all, or maybe worse depending on how you look at it, the vinyl was in pristine condition. It looked and played as if it had never been touched. I cannot recommend if I could only remember my name enough. You would be forgiven upon listening if you think it's an album done by Crosby, Stills, and Nash & Young, Jefferson Airplane, and The Grateful Dead, because it pretty much is, really, Well, except for Stephen Stills, who isn't on the album at all, but members of each of those groups play and sing on the album. I also highly recommend watching the Remember My Name documentary. And one more David Crosby recommendation for you, follow him on Twitter. His handle is The David Crosby. If for no other reason follow him on Twitter because if you roll a joint and tag him in a picture of said joint, he will critique your rolled joint for you. Speaking of joints and other counterculture paraphernalia, that brings me to what I consider to be the number one most underrated album of all time, let alone 1971. It's an album I actually did talk about in a previous episode, But due to various circumstances, including the fact that I find it so underrated, I think it's worthy of discussion again here. This album was recorded by the cast of the groundbreaking counterculture Broadway show Hair. Traditionally, every year the cast of Hair would celebrate the show's anniversary by performing a free concert in Central Park. But in 1971, producer Michael Butler wanted something a bit more majestic. So at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, May 9th, 1971, Hare's third birthday was celebrated as a mass at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, with the mass proper music consisting of Hare composer Galt McDermott's recently completed work called Mass in F. The hymns consisted almost entirely of songs from the musical, with the opening hymn being Aquarius and the closing hymn being The Flesh Failures, often known as Let the Sunshine In. I guess that works. The mass was broadcast live on New York radio station WNEW, and two months later was released on an album on RCA Records called Divine Hair/Slash Mass and F. Now, have you ever heard of Divine Hair, Mass and F outside of this podcast? I'd be shocked if you did. I have a feeling that very few people have heard it. Maybe musical theater buffs, specifically those who are into hair. I've mentioned in an earlier episode that I'm not really into musical theater at all, but I absolutely love the show Hair. It was the music that got to me first, and then when I eventually saw a production, the story, and yes, there is one, just did me in. But I would grab any hair cast recording I could find, from the off-Broadway production of 1967 to the movie soundtrack from 1979 and beyond. The record is on one of RCA's notorious Dynaflex discs that were out in the early 70s, but I gotta tell you, despite what you may read online, do not let the reputation of Dynaflex vinyl get in your way of enjoying it. I have a few of those super thin Dynaflex RCA records, and they all sound really good. But what really makes the album sound good is the music. The songs from Hair are performed not only by the cast, but also by various choirs from the cathedral. You've never truly felt the emotion in songs like 3500 and What a Piece of Work is Man until you've heard the versions on this album, backed by the show's band and multiple choirs. Easily these performances blow away their equivalents on the 1968 Broadway cast recording. By far the most chilling of these performances is Where Do I Go? The song that ends Act 1 and contains the famous nude scene. I'm pretty sure that the cast kept their clothes on for this occasion. If you've heard Appendix 3 of this podcast, which was released after Chapter 36, but before this episode, you heard Where Do I Go from Divine Hair Mass and F if you let the episode play all the way through. The song is sung on stage by Claude Bukowski, Claude is the show's main character and he spends the entire show struggling over whether to allow himself to be inducted into the army after receiving his draft card, or go through any number of schemes to avoid the draft. The song Where Do I Go is Claude dealing with that struggle, and in the show he sings the song after he pulls his draft card away from a fire when deciding at the last minute not to burn it. In this mass, the song is performed by Robin McNamara, who was playing Claude on stage at the time. His vocal is nothing short of stellar. If the name Robin McNamara rings a bell, it might be because he was also a one-hit wonder from the late 60s, early 70s. He had a song called Lay a Little Lovin' on Me. I had the honor of befriending Robin online in the 90s. When I eventually met him in person at an event in 2005 and introduced myself, he immediately gave me an insanely huge hug that left my neck sore for hours. Later on, when Lisa and I left and we said our goodbyes, once again, Robin gave me an insane hug that once again left my neck sore until the next day. He was always a joyful guy, and he shared my love of tie-dye shirts. Sadly, his wife Susie died a few years ago, just two or three weeks after a breast cancer diagnosis, and it devastated Robin. All his friends lost contact with him until he reemerged on Facebook a few months later, saying that the pain from losing Susie made him turn to drugs. He publicly thanked a friend for helping him get off those drugs, too. He still did his best to spread his crazy joy, but he was clearly in severe emotional pain. On October 21st of this year, unfortunately, Robin passed away. I don't think anybody knows what he died from, but many believe it was heartbreak over losing Susie. But I can't help but feel good that those two soulmates are together again. The crazy hugs he gave me in 2005 were certainly nothing compared to the hugs he gave Susie on the other side. But getting back to Divine Hair, the show's producer would probably agree with my assessment. In 1997, Michael Butler saw a few posts from me in the same online forum where I knew Robin, and I was discussing the album. He emailed me and asked me if I could make him a tape copy of Divine Hair. Of course, I was happy to do that for him, but I was curious as to why he didn't already have it. I mean, after all, he was in charge of the whole freaking Broadway production. He said that he did indeed own a copy of Divine Hair, but it was deep in storage somewhere, and not really easily accessible. Again, I was happy to make a tape for Michael. After all, it would give me an excuse to listen to the album. So, I recorded the album onto tape, and mailed the tape to Michael's apartment in Chicago, and he emailed me afterwards to thank me, saying he listened to the tape over and over and cried tears of joy to hear it, reliving memories of what was one of the most memorable days of his life. He invited me to drop in and have a drink with him, and I took him up on the offer. We had lunch twice that summer in his huge apartment in River North. Craziness. I, an everyday schnook, got to have lunch with the producer of Hair, twice. But that's a story for another occasion. For now, let's get back to the wonderful music of 1971. Not just what I consider the top 3 most underrated albums of the year, which I will recap really quickly starting with number 3, Other Voices by The Doors, If I Could Only Remember My Name by David Crosby, and Divine Hair slash Mass in F by the cast of Hair. And when I say wonderful music of 1971, friends, I mean wonderful, and especially with what I consider to be the 3 best albums of 1971. For me, the third best from that year is one that I didn't really listen to until, tragically, the last few years. How I went through so much of my life without hearing Carole King's masterpiece, Tapestry, is beyond me. In fact, I don't think I want to know. Mind you, I was familiar with the hits from the album, but as a whole, oh, holy moly. First of all, Carole King's voice, just divine. So powerful yet comforting at the same time so far away gets me every single time and although aretha's version is definitive carol king's version of you make me feel like a natural woman is a fantastic album closer and i gotta say i do not get the appeal of the shirelles every song i ever heard by the shirelles has one thing in common they sound bored and as a result their songs sound boring their performance of Will You Love Me Tomorrow just doesn't allow someone to see the true beauty of that song. But you know what? Carole King's version on Tapestry absolutely does. When I hear it, I just want to reach out and give Carole a big hug. And the version that she did with James Taylor on the Live at the Troubadour album released in 2010, recently I was listening to it and oh my god, that performance of Will You Love Me Tomorrow it just left me a sobbing mess. And I mean that in a good way. Now I've been trying to make it a point to have vinyl copies of all my favorite albums. Unfortunately, Tapestry is not in my record collection. I know the album courtesy of Lisa's compact discs. But strangely, despite my frequent trips to various record stores in and around Chicago, I just rarely happen upon a vinyl copy of the album. I see plenty of other Carole King's albums and not Tapestry. Before I do buy an album, I usually do some googling to find out which pressing is the best sounding vinyl version. Unfortunately, that search usually leads me to the Steve Hoffman forums, but hey. It seems, though, that not many pressings of Tapestry ever did sound very good. Apparently, if you do want a good-sounding vinyl copy of Tapestry, The Way to Go is a reissue from around 1977. It's apparently one with a tan label on it. The one time I recently saw Tapestry, it was an original pressing with a white label. I just left it in the rack. But my consolation was on Black Friday this year which also happened to be Record Store Day. One of the Record Store Day releases was a vinyl version of Carole King's 1971 appearance on the BBC. Of the eight songs from this performance, seven are from Tapestry, while the eighth song, Up on the Roof, might as well have been from Tapestry the way Carole always performed it. I gave the record its first spin just hours before I wrote this part of the script, and damn it, that record made me feel good. Truly, Carole King is one of my musical heroes partially thanks to Tapestry. Unlike with Tapestry, I do have not one but two vinyl copies of what I consider the second best album of 1971. I have a vintage 70's copy of Who's Next by The Who, and a much more recent reissue, but sadly neither sounds really good. Part of me wants to think that if I upgrade my turntable stylus to something much more expensive than the 1895 currently installed on the tonearm, it'll sound good, but I still have my doubts. Which is sad, because one of the greatest rock albums ever deserves great sound. Who's Next is such a great album that if you hear a song from it on the radio, it's both a wonderful experience and a horrible experience. Wonderful because you'll be hard-pressed to hear something more rocking but horrible because you just can not listen to just one song from who's next. And God help you if the radio station you tuned in is playing the chintzy single version of Won't Get Fooled Again. You gotta hear the whole thing from start to finish. From the opening, delay-drenched Baldwin-Organ sounds of Baba O'Reilly, uh, yes, it's called Baba O'Reilly, not Teenage Wasteland, which is a different song altogether. Long story there. If you want to know that story, look up the unreleased Lifehouse album in your favorite search engine. To the final, crashing chords of Won't Get Fooled Again. If you're listening to a copy of the album that has bonus tracks, STOP once Won't Get Fooled Again is over. Cause that's all you need. Listen to Bargain next time you're in the car, and try not to crank the volume all the way up. Actually, no, don't bother trying, because you won't be able to. And just when you think the Who is getting mellow when you hear the beginning of Behind Blue Eyes... psych! The band rocks out. If anybody ever asks you what arena rock is, Sit your interlocutor down and have that person listen to who's next from start to finish, and then ask, Does that answer your question? And if you ever want to see something that will absolutely give you the single definitive example of what rock and roll is, go to the online bibliography for this episode at schnookpodcast.com, click on the YouTube link for Won't Get Fooled Again, and pay extremely close attention from 7 minutes and 50 seconds until about seven seconds later. Rock and roll, man. Rock and roll. When I worked at Sharp Electronics in Romeoville, Illinois, every Friday I would listen to side one of Who's Next on my way to work, and side two on my way home after work. Side one would psych me up for the last workday of the week, and side two would pat me on the back for surviving the week and lead me to a well-deserved weekend. Who's Next is one of several famous albums that started life as a completely different, perhaps more ambitious project. The Beach Boys' Smile evolved into Smiley Smile. The Beatles' Get Back became Let It Be. Many fans feel that both of those albums turned out to be disappointing compared to what they originally were intended to be. Who's Next was originally supposed to be a much more complex project called LifeHouse. Uh, Again, look it up on your favorite search engine, I don't want to get into it here, other than to say that LifeHouse would have been not only an album, but also a series of multimedia concerts complete with a storyline and music that would be generated literally by the vibes given off by concert attendees. When Pete Townsend had to face reality and just accept that the whole project would have been impossible to pull off back then... The album was significantly trimmed down, the storyline was thrown out, and the world ended up with Who's Next. The Lifehouse outtakes and demos have been released publicly over the years, and I gotta tell you, the Who did the right thing by scrapping that beast and releasing what they did. Who's Next is truly the greatest rock album ever. So why is it not the best album of 1971? Notice that I said it's the greatest rock album ever. I didn't say it's the greatest album ever. That honor obviously goes to Pet Sounds, uh, which you could argue is not really so much rock, really. But because Pet Sounds is from 1966, it is not eligible for this 1971 list, so it has to go to another album, one that is seriously in fierce competition for being my favorite album of all time. A native of Washington, D.C. would write letters to his brother, who was fighting a war in Vietnam. When said brother returned, to say that he was disgusted by what he saw happening here in the States would be a major understatement. Frankie Gay's words were along the lines of, This is what I was fighting for? Frankie's reaction to the condition of the country, plus the letters written to him by his brother Marvin, were the main inspiration for the album, What's Going On? Mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, brother. There's far too many of you dying. In the year or two leading up to the album, Marvin Gaye was going through some pretty rough times. Tammy Terrell, one of his best friends and frequent singing partner, had recently died from brain cancer. Marvin fell into a deep depression that led to drug addiction. He abandoned the music world. And you want to know how badly Marvin was affected by Tammy's death? He actually tried to join the Detroit Lions. Good God, talk about hitting rock bottom. Meanwhile, Obie Benson from The Four Tops was writing a protest song after he witnessed police brutality while on tour. Motown staff songwriter Al Cleveland helped flesh the song out. The two of them demoed the song for Marvin Gaye and wanted his input. Marvin said, this song would probably be a really good fit for the originals, uh, the originals being one of their label mates at Motown. Obi, however, he had other thoughts. He thought Marvin should record it. So, Marvin took the song, and he made a few changes inspired by the 1965 Watts riots and his brother Frankie's reaction to the state of the country, and he titled the song, What's Going On. So, Marvin Gaye offered the song to Barry Gordy, along with an idea for a whole album of songs that address social issues. Gordy told Gaye, nope, don't want Motown to get involved in political and social commentary. Furthermore, he said that What's Going On was the worst song he ever heard. After some back and forth, Barry Gordy relented and agreed to release What's Going On as a single, under the stipulation that if it was a hit, he would agree to let Marvin do the album that he wanted to do. So, how did the song do? (laughs) Funny you should ask. It went to number one on Billboard's R&B and Soul chart, number one on Cashbox's Top 100, and number two on Billboard's Hot 100 under no possible measure could you deny that the song What's Going On indeed was a hit, so Marvin got to do the album. And that album consisted of nine songs, arranged in a two-part song cycle. Following the title track, there was What's Happening, Brother, a song undoubtedly taken from the back and forth between Marvin and Frankie. Flying high in the friendly sky dealt with heroin abuse. Save the Children had the same message as the song What's Going On, but with the reminder that we're trying to shape a better future for the next generation. While the short uptempo God is Love, the title track's B-side, reminds the listener where to turn in rough times. Side One closes with the hit song Mercy Mercy Me, a lament about the shape the environment is in, ending with some truly haunting and melancholic Mellotron notes that give the listener something to think about while flipping the record over. Side 2, however, begins with a long, begins with some positivity with a seven and a half minute up tempo right on, which, in my opinion, has the greatest bass groove ever recorded. Uh, it broke my heart to find out that that amazing bass line was played not by the great Funk Brothers bassist James Jamerson, but by Hungarian American bassist Bob Babbitt, who played bass not only on this song, but the entirety of Side 2 plus Mercy Mercy Me. For me, Right On is one of Motown's finest moments on record, topped only maybe by some of Stevie Wonder's 70s classics. And these lyrics... For those of us who simply like to socialize, for those of us who tend the sick and heed the people's cries, let me say to you, Right On. (sighs) goosebumps every time. Play Side 2 and crank the volume up for Right On. It is impossible to play this song too loud. Now all I have to say about the next track, Holy Holy, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y-H-O-L-Y, other than it's kind of a calm down from Right On, is that when CNN I think it was CNN at least when they recently aired a documentary on the What's Going On album there were several talking head commentators who pointed out that suddenly the album turns to God um people did you not hear God is Love on side 1 and why did this documentary totally skip over right on (sighs) but anyway Marvin ends the album with inner city blues makes me want to holler full of lyrics that I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast can relate to Increasing crime, money not lasting, rogue cops, the war, you name it, it's there. Then the album fades with the percussive beat that tied the entire song cycle together, making you wonder if what Marvin was lamenting would ever get better. I can't help but wonder what he'd think now, half a century later. And because I am who I am, I have to talk about the alternate mix. When the What's Going On album was first mixed in Detroit... Barry Gordy was concerned that it didn't have hit potential, so a new mix was prepared in Hollywood, and that's the mix that was released on May 21, 1971, and went to number one on the Billboard Top Soul Albums chart and number six on the Billboard Pop Albums chart. In June of 1984, the album found itself charting again, this time at number 154, undoubtedly sparked by Marvin's recent death. The Detroit mix, by the way, is available on expanded reissues of the album, but meh. I think Barry Gordy did the right thing by nixing it. The Hollywood remix is much better. But it's still worth listening to the original mix, just to hear vocals that were later mixed down and to hear some alternate edits. I'm happy to say that this is one of my favorite albums that I also have on vinyl. I called one of my go-to stores, Lori's Planet of Sound, during the pandemic shutdown last year and asked if they had a copy of it. Well... Lori's did not have a copy, but they special ordered one for me, and it sounds so good, especially right on. If you haven't heard this breathtaking album, you're doing your ears, soul, and heart a tragic disservice. So, the three greatest albums of 1971, from third to first. Tapestry by Carole King, Who's Next by The Who, and What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. In a year that had no shortage of great albums for music fans, just these three alone gave the music world some hope that there would still be some great music to look forward to in the future. And Disco was only a few years away. On Black Friday this year, I found myself at a Target store. Many Target stores have these small kiosks that have a column of records on each side and I saw a kid who couldn't have been more than maybe 16 years old carefully looking through these records. One of the records available was What's Going On. I regret not stepping in and kind of nudging him toward that record. Again, I'm sure there were some great albums of 1971 that I failed to mention, but I wanted to keep this episode from going on extensively long. Curious about your thoughts about 1971 in music. You can reach me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. You can tweet me at schnookpodcast. And you can also reach me on Facebook. And hey, since I uh, gave you all that information, I might as well just transition into the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I am trying desperately to get an actual December episode out as well. So uh, hopefully before Christmas that'll happen. And if not, well, I can't say I didn't try. Can I, you heard some audio clips, some of which may have included some copyrighted music. Well, those clips remain the property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Those clips were used for purposes of review for commentary and demonstration, all that good stuff. In the meantime, if you just can't get enough of my voice, well, there's Pie Factory Podcast, which I co host with my friend Jim, and we talk about classic vintage arcade video games, and uh, sometimes we drift off topic. And there's also another podcast of which I am the co host, and that is Tune X Podcast, co hosted by. My wife and me, uh, Lisa, and I get uh, very deep about the Beach Boys. So, if you're interested in that, check us out, 2Next Podcast. Both of those podcasts are available on all of your favorite podcast suppliers. And if uh, they're not, let me know and I will make sure that them and even this one will be added, Uh, except for SoundCloud. That costs money. But in the meantime, I hope all of you have a wonderful December fantastic holidays if there are any that you particularly celebrate, but whatever happens, I do hope that the good goes around to you. All the best, my friends.